so tonight I, I don't want us to take a New Year's resolution. I'm asking for something deeper from us. I want to go way down in there and pull out what is sacred and see if we can establish that as a direction for ourselves in this coming year. And it doesn't matter if you're new to the Sangha or you've been here for years and years. Still, uh, the full actualization, the full realization of this intentionality is the consummate direction and endeavor of a worthwhile life. And so... Uh, tonight I want to talk a little bit about what that paradigm shift looks like, but in order for us to shift paradigms, which a paradigm is changing the underlying assumptions of what we have about life. It's not just behavior modification. It's not just tweaking our behavior so that we are better off in a certain way. But the basic assumptions, so it's a deeper rooted issue really, and is at the basis of our um, misorientation here in uh and within the paradigm we have. But first we have to look at the miserable life that many of us live within the paradigm we now have. And I know misery is a little bit harsh of a word, probably doesn't fit your particular situation, but it does millions and perhaps billions of other people who are on this planet in the conditions, in the decrepit conditions that many people live within. But regardless, you can see what a life lived within a certain paradigm looks like, within the paradigm that we are now as a culture and as a world embracing. What's the world look like from that? From that? What's the effects of that paradigm, the paradigm of duality, of you and me, of this and that? What does the world look like? And I just read a statistic that perked my ears a little. It said that uh, in the second half of the 20th century, that's after the Second World War, 120 million people died from violence. That's, that should get our attention. But we don't have to look at the historical um, problems that uh, working within the relationship of life and the way we live it. Uh, we can look at the climate. It's my favorite topic today because I think it's the overriding issue of our times. I hope health care passes, but by God, the climate, we better do something about it. And so uh, we can see that uh, unless we have a paradigm shift around the way we hold the earth, that nothing's going to change, that we can't tweak our behavior a little bit and expect us to come out of this thing in any kind of of a healthy way. It it takes a complete shift of the way we're doing something, not an incremental adaptation. Incremental adaptations don't work for this kind of crisis that that has befallen us. And so hopefully within each of us as we realize the problems that have both been generated historically from this paradigm and the ones that are currently being faced, there's an urgency within us, I hope so, An urgency that feels um, not impatient but passionate about uh, changing the conditions and qualities of life so that this world can hold six billion people uh, in some kind of harmonious way. 
And I was reading, one of you gave me a book review of a, uh, it was a New York Times book review of a book called The Paradise Built in Hell. And it was uh, it's really a fantastic, it's a, just an amazing book. I haven't read the book, but plan to. And her uh, study, she went out and uh, went into the heart of disasters around like Katrina, 9-11, the Bay Area, earthquakes, etc. And uh, went right into the culture of those dramatic uh, catastrophes and found something very surprising. From a distance, she says, it looks catastrophic. It looks disastrous. It looks like people pillaging and not caring about each other. But from the inside, from the catastrophe itself, it looks very different. And here's what she says. Uh, Her answer is strangely and powerfully hopeful. She doesn't long for disasters. They are, she writes, most basically terrible, tragic, and grievous. But they are not just that. As she proves with countless interviews, disasters often produce remarkable temporary communities paradises of a sort amid the rubble where people acting on their own and without direction from the authorities manage to provide for each other. In the wake of an earthquake, a bombing, or a major storm, most people are altruistic, urgently engaged and caring for themselves and those around them, strangers and neighbors as well as friends and loved ones. She said in one of her Interview. She said, I was surprised to realize that most of the people I knew and met in the Bay Area after this earthquake were also enjoying immensely the disaster that shut down much of the reason for several days. If enjoyment is the right word of that sense of immersion in the moment and solidarity with others in the moment caused by the rupture in everyday life, an emotional emotion graver than happiness, but deeply positive. And finally, she concludes, these remarkable societies suggest that just as many machines reset themselves to their original setting after a power outage, so human beings reset themselves to something altruistic, communitarian, resourceful, and imaginative after a disaster, that we avert to something we already know how to do the possibility of paradise is already within us as a default setting. See, that gives me hope. You see, if it's after 60 years of some kind of brutal spiritual austerity, then it's hopeless, isn't it? But if there's a default setting within us that can be shaken from us through peril, calamity, or perhaps just the urgency with which we feel, if that default setting can then become animated and become activated within us, then there is hope. Because it's not as if we have to relearn that orientation. It's there within us. The heart is there. It's preset. So what is it, what's all the confusion? You see, why is it so easy to fall back into the disarray, into the struggle, into the conflict? into the enormous violence that we as a human society and species uh, offset and lay upon one another. What's that about if this paradigm can be shifted? Does it take something as dramatic as a catastrophe, 9-11, to 
bring forth this basic goodness that's within us. I often see it in the dying. I have seen it many times with people who have no time left to live and therefore no reason to excuse themselves into further violence. And from that their heart sometimes flowers in the most revelatory ways. Just a beautiful um, actualization of what was always in there. But they never had time to encourage in themselves. And so my hope is that we don't have to die. As the Buddha said, when we know we are going to die, quarrels cease immediately. <laughs> no more violence. What, what, suddenly the whole thing becomes lived in perspective, doesn't it? And perhaps maybe that's one of the ways that the heart has access, is from that perspective. That minor irritations, annoyances, or even major conflicts just don't matter in some sense. I know a hospice nurse once told me uh, she couldn't go to bed uh, angry at her husband. She would wake the poor guy up (laughs) and finish the discussion so that they could go to bed without that kind of inward tension. And uh, it was because she lived her work. She knew that there was no delay in life, that you can't postpone and procrastinate like many of us do. And sometimes when we're in the field of time, when we think we have a lot of time, when there's much that we can do, but we can do it later, all of a sudden the whole thing becomes distorted, almost like one of those uh, carnival mirrors. And we don't, uh, we don't behave in, from our default position. We de- behave from that distorted and warped reflection we see in ourselves. And so my suggestion here is that not to think about this as a long and lengthy process, but something that's accessible when we talk about a paradigm shift. Even though it seems and sounds remote, and many of us have spent many years of our lives with a spiritual orientation and still haven't felt that our paradigm has shifted, I say that it's much more immediate than that. It's whether we are willing to think ourselves out of our life continuously, moment after moment, or reside fully and and abide within our life and not let our lives confiscate our attention which are full of time and orientation and past and the meaning and purpose and intention and what's the future going to hold and all of that. Where is the present for us? Where is it when we can dream and drift our life endlessly? And so that dreaming and drifting must end. And it ends because we realize that there's an urgency here not to dream ourselves away. That our children's children's children depend upon us. For what we're doing now has devastating effects upon everyone. Perhaps we will get out of here without feeling the effects of our climate. 
but our children won't. So to end this self-centeredness, and it cannot happen through behavior modification. It's not a tweaking. It's an urgency. So, what is this urgency calling from us? What is this urgency asking from us, you see? If we're asking uh, sort of the gymnasium approach to spiritual correction, then we would all be uh, at a disadvantage. I don't feel like doing that, I'm too old. But if it's calls for love, well, I can do that. In fact, it sounds appealing. Doesn't it? So let's not talk about it in terms of of uh, emptiness. Let's not talk about it in some discouraging way that keeps us somewhat reluctant to move in that direction. Let's talk about it in some way that allures us, that pulls us out, that encourages us to come out of our skins. And for those of you who sat through the Parami series, which I hope many of you did, we know our orientation to love. We know our orientation to the Paramis. This isn't something remote. This is something immediate. And that we just keep getting in the way of our love. We keep getting in the way of all the Paramis. But that our default position, when left alone and unscathed with our thinking is with a full abiding heart. It was something very approachable and very clear and very near to that. And so let us use the lessons that we learned last year. I mean, I spent a year doing this part of me stuff. <laughs> I don't want to have to start base one every year. Let's move with this, you see. Let's look at this thing. From self to selflessness. And the Buddha said, said, anger never ceases by anger alone. It never ceases. He didn't say, well, it'll cease uh, after uh, 2,000 or 5,000 years. It will never cease. The ancient bickering, the lost and resentful, hostile memory that each of us contain about this neighbor and that. Where is love in this? Where is there love in this? He said, it will never cease by anger alone, only through love. That's the paradigm shift. That's why Buddhism in the heart of hearts is such an orientation to simplicity, such an orientation to quiet because we cannot find love in noise in our thinking within the dimensions of our thought travel in the trance of our thinking but in quietude in simplicity in the willingness to show up for our life where do we think love resides is it in the past or the future is it something that some abstract idea that I can conjure up in order to at some point be loving? Or are we going to find it now? And if we don't, it will be never found. And some of us are so afraid of finding it because it might disturb us somehow. It will disturb you. 
But if your life was working so well, if all of our lives were working so well, undisturbed, well, we would not have to bring this subject up. We have to disturb ourselves. But what better method, what better approach, what better direction to take for disturbance than affection, than kindness? So in the meditation, we start with kindness. That's what I, I love about I mean, if anybody has been paying attention, even in the beginning class, from day one, we sit down and as we follow our breath and there's that attitude of self-dislike and self-recrimination that we have about not being able to follow our breath and what's the matter with me and all of the inward talk, that immediately is addressed. That's immediately addressed. So from day one, the approach to this thing is towards self-kindness, is towards opening and expanding the delivery of our heart to ourselves and through ourselves, not in spite of ourselves, not surmounting ourselves, but through ourselves. Through ourselves, the channel is open. And so we start looking. We get onto that. We say, okay. You see, this is a simple matter of loving ourselves to death. That's, that's, the, that's the spiritual method. Right? So we're not struggling with ourselves. We're simply opening up a different conduit of acceptance, of inclusivity, of allowance that finds no fault and you think, fine, no fault. What's going to keep me in line? You have to trust this thing a little bit. Trust something besides your own defenses. Let's trust something besides our own control. Let's trust something besides our own righteousness. We think, if I gave up my anger, I wouldn't have anything that motivated me to, towards injustice. I wouldn't go out there and try to feed the homeless. Or Why? Because it's my righteousness that keeps me going. And that's it. That's what keeps us going and keeps the world divided. What, we don't think if we gave that up that there would be anything that motivated us? You see, in love, love has its own value system. It doesn't like to see the hungry. <laughs> and it's not righteousness that, that it acts from. It acts from truth. Because truth is a value system inherent in itself. Remember the paramis? Generosity is inherent in the awareness itself. Was one of the paramis conflict, violence, and struggle? I don't think so. But we don't trust it. We don't think we would we think we would become apathetic. The clearer we see, the more our heart engages in what it sees. The more it wants to remove suffering from the world. The clearer it sees. And the clearer it sees means the less confusion it's under. And there's no confusion like the paradigm we're in. Believe me. It's exi we exist in a virtual reality of our own making. Very little heart in this 
Which means what? We, it, we live within an unconscious darkness controlled by the sentences we tell ourselves and project upon the world. How can love find its way into that? How can love meet anything within that darkness? Because the definition of love is light. So when we get a sense of this thing, people, I mean, you get a sense of it, you know, and you just, well, you can't go to sleep angry at the earth. That you, you can't go to sleep angry at your brother and sister. You just can't do that anymore. We just can't do that. We can't keep leaning in that direction. This requires something much deeper from us, but we have it accessible. Let's just try it. Let's just be willing to try it. And so we get very familiar with what the mind does to camouflage that love. And the mind talks its way out of connectedness and then talks its way in to separation. And so the mind thinks it has to overcome a problem or it has to differentiate the problem even further or it has to oppose the problem or it has to cultivate something so that it can be have the ability to overcome the problem. And so the mind constantly talks from a fear and desire language of not being enough and scarcity and what it needs to overcome and what it needs to surmount. But the language of love doesn't do that. You see, if if each of us just for this moment could feel how the air touches our skin. Right? Just feel it. There's actually no pressure that the air is giving us. It's not pushing us. It's just holding us. Wherever we go, even if we do the most heinous act, it still holds us. It still holds us. Holds us with, com- with completion. It doesn't wag any finger. It doesn't do any distorting. It just surrounds us. Now, as we feel the air on our skin, let us switch it to awareness. And that presence is the presence of love. And that's the paradigm shift. Because it's awake where the air isn't. Awareness is awake. And wakefulness has its own resources. It has its own dimensionality. It has its own clarity. And it has its own value system called the paramis. And therefore, that wakefulness itself starts acting its way through our system because we become awake within it. We don't become like a snowball with the sun shining. The snow melts. We thaw out. We become awake within it. And with that, then from that clarity and wakefulness, we move. But if we don't establish some way to be embraced within it, and so in the next so many months, I don't know if it'll take a year, but we're going to be looking at 
the Buddha's teaching around mindfulness and awareness, the heart of the teaching, going to the sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, and going right into it. Because if this thing doesn't hold potentiality for all of us, if this isn't a system in which we can start as ignorant as we start, but we keep the intention to make this thing bloom, because we just don't have time any longer to pretend that life will live forever. So what keeps us from shifting paradigms? What keeps us in such a remote and distant land where we perceive like the opposite ends of the binoculars from a distant and objects? Everything meaning something to me. Everything is about me. Feeling the impact emotionally, individually, in isolation from everything else. How can that possibly be the way life is? How could everything have started 13 and a half billion years ago from a single thing, exploded outward into differentiation? Wouldn't that single thing still be a single thing even 13 and a half billion years later? Maybe there's confusion because we've all been scattered across the infinite distances of the universe, but inherent within each thing is the common common denominator of us all. And so spirituality is coming back to that. It's retracing our steps home. But the echoes of the Big Bang are still here. The microwave echo is still here. And so too is the common origin. No matter what the distances are between us. And so the default position is where we can take trust and is where we can land. So what is it that seems to keep us from this Shifting of paradigms. Well, I mean, unfortunately, we're not finished in the paradigm we're in. Many of us haven't played out our need for control and our need for individuation within the paradigm we're in. And so we keep trying to milk the pleasures out of this system. It's like we're playing the game. We have the visors on us and this is virtual reality game. And it was just so enticing that we've forgotten the reality that we left when we put the visors on. And we just see more and more avenues to treat ourselves within this new reality. And so we do. We, we give it a full effort. And so when we're asked to come to love, it sounds, well, that's fine as long as I can do it as an individual. But you can't do it as an individual because love isn't individuated. It's the fact that things are together is love. It's not that I'm going to be loving as an individual because the individual and love are direct, inversely proportional to each other. 
Think of little l and big I. If the I is big, then the L is small. You may muster up enough emotion for your family, but then only conditionally. But if the L is big, then the I is small. And then there's room, a vast room to explore here. Because if we're willing to move to the default position of love, then you find that there's not much room for your cantankerousness, for your struggles, for our conflict, for our complaint and judgment. That erodes. And when we take that away, there's nothing left. We were a smokescreen of complaint. So we're not trying to eradicate anything that was true. We're just letting ourselves release all the untruths, the way we speak, the way we condemn, the way we judge, the way we conclude. See what's, see what's down there. See what's down there. After, you know, it's like the, let's look behind the, the Wizard of Oz. Let's pull the screen and see what's, what that thing is up there flashing around you in a baritone voice. I'm going to pull I would have been the first one. What the hell is that thing? <laughs> so I want to go. I don't want to stop where we assume the truth to be. Why do you want to stop there? You stop at yourself? You, just because you're loud, you're going to be convinced in your loudness that you're saying something important and not disturb it? I say, well, let's look a little deeper than that. It needs disturbance. Because if it's just sound, and that we're taking ourselves... As fact, because of the sounds we make, what's it like? Let's be a little risky and see what it's what we're like when we're quiet. Let's see what shows up when we are quiet, when we're still. How about that's a challenge? That's a challenge. See if there's a big A awareness and a small when there's a small I. You see, look, look at the ratio, the proportionality of awareness in, in self. Get that one down so we know why we're obscuring and how we're obscuring that which is always present. We yell our attention away from it. And when we're quiet, Lord Almighty, does this thing open up? The heavens beckon. Who wouldn't want to know that? And so, let us look if we don't feel finished as a person, if we feel incomplete as a person. Is that just a feeling about ourselves as a person? Is it, what, what is that based on? What What's incomplete about us now because the air that surrounds us, the love that surrounds us, the awareness that surrounds us doesn't think we're incomplete at all. Either it's my opinion of my incompleteness because it's not being shared. My awareness doesn't hold it. 
awareness just seems to caress where it should be encouraging me to gain or become or do something better, better myself. So awareness doesn't do that. So I, which, which voice am I going to listen to? That which holds me respectfully, appreciatively, or my own voice that is built upon my own idealization of myself, where I should be, where I need to go, where I haven't improved and where I'm still lacking. And what are those things based on? It's based on a feeling I have about myself. And I can't even be with my feeling enough to even know what that feeling is. It seems so real that I'm incomplete. What about the sense of incompleteness? Let me look at it. Let me just see it. Good Lord, why are we behaving this way? Because our thoughts are telling us to? And you'll find nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong here. It doesn't mean we don't have conditioning that is unskillful. Many of us do. But to assume that that conditioning is us person is always more than the sum of their acts. They cannot be defined by their actions. Not, a, not, not who they really are. And so, if we're finding ourselves still yearning for more of being separated, what is it that we're looking for? And how do we expect that completion to occur? And has it ever occurred? Look at our lives and ask ourselves realistically if 40 more years is going to do it. Believe me, I can go up 20 probably from your age and I guarantee that 20 didn't do it. So I say that you realize that this thing's we're running out of time and we're, we just don't have the we just we don't have the right orientation to the problem. I don't know why it takes us so long to learn that. You know, you think, wait a second here. <laughs> Maybe I'm not such an awful person to begin with. Maybe it's just, I, that's my programming. And that allows us to finish this work, this self-individuated work that we all feel we have to do that keeps this paradigm firm and entrenched within us because your separated work forms that paradigm, assures that paradigm of continuation. There's nothing wrong with anyone's heart in this room. Not a thing. Not a thing. Even if I had the ability and the mastery and the power to change something in you, you know what? I wouldn't. Not a thing. At least I'm clear enough to have seen that. And so I'll leave you alone. And secondly, this another reason that seems to constantly be a filter for us 
and to keep our love obscured and to keep us entrenched in this paradigm is our doubt. We have such strong doubt in this culture. There are, doubting is, you know, there, there are people who want to come here and speak who I want to let them speak because they're going to tell you about the spiritual journey being so elaborate and long and jhana practice and all these absorb and you'll say to yourself because your doubt loves hearing things it can't possibly do oh I, you know I can't do that so I'm going to take a very humble and passive seat to this whole equation of spiritual transformation because I can't do any of that stuff that's for that's for the Olympic spiritualists <laughs> they meet up there in Vancouver soon. <laughs> I can't do that. So I won't let them speak to you. I've told many a folk who've written books, oh my God, because you'll just hear it as doubt. And you don't need it. You don't need the doubt, but you don't need that extra... That, because all it does... Believe me, I lived with it. You need a clear, simple message right to your heart let's get all the clutter away from this thing you know if they want to clutter their rooms fine let them do that That, that's not my but if you come here I'm going to give you a simple method simple like stop doing what you're doing Because doubt is, is seeds us in a way that we don't realize. It, it makes us half-hearted in our attempt. We don't really inside, we just don't feel like we're, that we can rise to the occasion of what's being asked for. It's something's being asked for that we just don't feel that's in us. That's, what, that's doubt's message. I'm not ready yet. So, in order to continue the tradition forward, we'll say you have lifetimes to do it. So, you can play around. Except, how many lifetimes have you already played around? So you don't have any reference. And if you were 10,000 or a million more lifetimes, how would you know? Well, I can play around. Well, you scratch your head and you say, wait a minute now. I don't know, I'm fooling myself. This could just be one big echo. Just carried over. And it's just my doubt that procrastinates and prolongs. So we need to look into this thing called doubt and to end it. It's not to our advantage. And if you find yourself doubting, your ability in this practice. How can you doubt your heart? How can you doubt that? How can you doubt what's intrinsic within you? How can you doubt the disaster community's response? And another often cited 
problem that fixes us within this paradigm is that we're unwilling to face our pain. It's self-generated. We still want to blame our difficulties onto others. The lawyer who didn't, you know, the city didn't fix the curbs. We're realizing that this this is a closed system here. That our response to external situations is our response. And our response is determined by us. And that which is determined by us is not someone else's job to fix. It's ours to hold, to be accountable, to be responsible for. And if emotions pull us around, then where is our practice in that? Our practice is to be able to hold our inward life without seepage. There's a quote from Jesus who I, who I really like. This is in the Gospel of Thomas. If you ever, any of you want to uh, read a real mystical gospel, read Thomas. Anyway, he says, uh, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is, what, what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And all our practice is, is to bring forth what's within us so that we don't have an unconscious relationship to it and therefore sustain the perpetuation of projection and blame and lack of responsibility that many of us hold. So you even find it in the Christian scriptures. I mean, it's coming at us from all direction and we're going... (laughs) Another reason is the willingness to hold one's ground to expose everything. To have that willingness to say, I don't care, you know, my life isn't so great and I... And no one's life is. I'm not just talking about your particular life. But no life is so great that it should be held in contempt of our insight, of our awareness. That everything, that darkness rules in this time. And we are calling forth light to see. The light to see. What possibly could go wrong when we're making the unconscious conscious? What hideous thing The hideous thing would be in the unconscious, not in the conscious. And all we're doing is calling forth light. Full light, full love. Big L, small I. That's all. And to say, you know, I've, I've run enough here. I've run enough. The earth, if it, I'm trying to, where we stop, maybe we won't stop because of the pain we're in. How about the pain that we cause others? Well, maybe that won't even stop us. Well, how about the pain we cause the earth? Well, maybe that won't even stop. 
then I think we're hopeless. But if we we think, okay, you know, maybe I'll just do this for small children because I care about them or my cat. I don't know. I don't care. But wherever we can stop and say enough, geez, enough. That's where the, the paradigm shift occurs. It occurs in the stopping. It doesn't occur in the preparation for the stopping and all of the countless austerities we do in order. It comes in the stopping. Enough. Boom. Paradigm shift. Disaster community. Can't keep living like this. There's no community to live like. It's change. Okay, something new arise here. You see how close it is? The willingness to awaken love rather than conflict. That's what we're doing. So maybe that's not interesting to you. I don't know. I hope it is. Maybe you can find it in your yoga or your church or whatever you do. I hope you can. But that's what this meeting will and will always be about. Because we don't have time. And because this shift of paradigm, when we see conclusively that we have nowhere else to go, there's no other salvation available to us. Nothing's going to fix us. There's not going to be a break in the sky and God come out and say, okay, I'll clear it all up. Not going to happen. It's got to come from us to the situation. And when we realize that total responsibility, then we get very sober. And maybe we have to go through about two or three more elevated degrees of temperature before that shift occurs and we're in a disaster community. And our hearts are finally the default position. I hope it doesn't take that long. Thank you. Can we sit quietly for a moment or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.